0: have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to the first chapter of the gospel of according to Matthew. As we begin uh, this Advent season this morning, uh, we are beginning a series that we are entitled, The Birth Announcement. Every birth announcement that comes seems to have a certain amount of information on it. It's what you go and and look for, and there are certain details uh, that um, tell you everything you need to know about the child that has been born. The same is true, we believe, of that information that can tell us quite a bit uh, about uh, the gift that God has given to us in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And so during the course of the next few weeks, we will be looking at those details. This morning, we are looking at the name that has been given to him. Next week, we'll look at the family from which this child has come. Then we will look at the size, the the weight of uh, this child uh, carries. And finally, we will look at the time of which this child was born. Uh, This morning, our text will be focusing on Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 21. Uh, but for the sake of context, we'll be reading uh, beginning in verse eighteen through verse twenty five. So hear the word of the Lord. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and Holy God, we we do come this morning with thanksgiving as we begin the celebration of the greatest gift that we can receive. It is your gift to us. It is your presence with us. It is your son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would now open our eyes as we consider these words and his name that we may truly behold him not only with our minds as we consider it but with eyes of the heart we may see him his glory and his grace and see ourselves with that lens lord bless us with understanding this day that we may overflow all the more in praise and worship of you from the heart rather than merely through the motions we pray that we would worship you now by considering your word. We pray that you would bless us in Christ, even as you bless us by his word. Amen. Again, this morning we consider the name of Jesus that has been name that has been given to him. Names are sort of a strange thing in, in our culture. We're not always sure where names come from. Sometimes they come from family. Sometimes they come from uh, whatever is popular in a culture. Sometimes they come from a variety of unusual sources. Well, we wouldn't have done this with our children, and we didn't do it with our children, in our family, one of the practices we inherited from Carolyn's family, and naming our pets anyway, is whenever we would get a new pet in the family, uh, we would open the obituaries and see who died recently and then choose a name that seemed to look like the animal of choice. As I said, we didn't do that for our kids. I hope you don't do that for your kids either. But it's just, you know, just we do different things, weird things with names uh, in our culture. And historically speaking, names have been something of a, a quiz for people because it was Juliet that said to Romeo, what is a rose? By any other name, it would still smell as sweet. Now she was saying this, essentially saying, you know, a rose is a rose no matter what you wanna call it. And essentially, at least as Shakespeare was looking at at that point, names don't really matter. But according to a sociological study that I read, or a psychological study I'd read a number of years ago, uh, names do matter. There was an eminent psychiatrist who did a study of over 15,000 juvenile delinquents. And in his study, he found something of of interest. He found that those kids who hated their names, or even those who just didn't like their names, were four times more likely to get into trouble than those who either liked their names or were ambivalent, had uh, had neutral feelings about their names. But his conclusion was that names is directly related to self-image and self-esteem. Now, I began wondering about that because I had read that about the same time I had read about some other people and made me question them in the naming of their children. There was a farmer in Iowa who decided that he wanted to name his, his daughter after his uh, maternal grandmother. Her name was Ima, which certainly had its time in the day. The only problem is that the farmer's name was, uh, was Elroy Pig. And so he named his daughter Ima Pig certainly a mother who was praying for her daughter to be married at an early, early age. (laughs) I read another story that I still never was able to verify, but it's uh, too good to not tell. I don't know whether it's true or not, but uh, it does paint the picture. of South Carolina family, uh, there were three brothers that were born into the same family. They had to go to court. The brothers, when they reached teenage years, they went to court to have their names legally changed. The three brothers, the oldest brother whose name was Arthritis, the second son was named Bursitis, and the third son was named Jacitus. And as the story went, the judge was asking them, one, why do you want to change your name, and what is the problem behind this, and what's the origin of your name? And again, mother and father in this case seemed to be somewhat like um, our naming of our, our pets, choosing circumstances within their life. And so the first son... Said, well, when I was born, my mother was suffering from arthritis, so she named me arthritis. The second son, same story. My son, uh, so, uh, my uh, my mother was suffering from bursitis, and so she named me bursitis. So, so the judge said, well, I we see a theme running on here, and said to the third son, jichtitis. And the boy said. Mother says she was sick of my father, whose name was Jake. And their names were legally changed, understandably so. While names in our culture fluctuate, they may or may not carry meaning. In ancient times, names mattered significantly. As one Bible commentator states, ancient Hebrew names were usually an abbreviated form of a sentence, often proclaiming something about God. Sometimes the name would reflect an aspect of the child's birth, some circumstance they were facing uh, during that, which would give some credence to Jacitus and bursuitus, and uh, so it was uh, somewhat biblical that way. Sometimes in ancient times, the name would express the parent's reaction to the birth of the child, and we see that evident in the scriptures, that when Isaac was born, they named, his name means laughter because uh, his, his mother laughed at the whole idea that she would give birth to a child at her advanced age. And sometimes names were used to communicate a message from God whether it was given at birth or whether God would change the name of somebody. And we see examples of that in the scriptures as well. That Abram, meaning father of many, to Abraham, meaning father of many nations. Or when Jacob's name was the schemer, was changed to Israel, people of God. Or in the New Testament, when Simon's name was changed from Simon, meaning sand, sandy, shifting, to Peter, Petrus, rock, something solid. There was a, a message of God's transformation that was being declared through the name that the children and then later on the adults were given. Because names tell a story at times and they did in the, in the, in the scriptures. And this morning we come to the name of the babe of Bethlehem. The name Jesus. His name was given by God the Father through an angel to Joseph, not because his name was amusing or found some place that seemed like it would be catchy, but for a very specific reason that we see in our passage this morning, he shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He'll be named Jesus, the name that God had given him from the very beginning. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, the name Jesus was not unique at all. Kevin DeYoung writes in his uh, book, The Good News We Almost Forgot, Jesus was a very common name among Jewish males in the first century. From the evidence we have, which is over 2,500 named Jewish males in documents and inscriptions, scholars estimate that Jesus was probably the fourth most common name among Jewish men, about one out of 20 uh, it was behind only Simeon and Simon, which is the same name, Joseph and Judah. And Kevin DeYoung finishes with this. So if you were a little boy in first century Palestine, there was a very good chance that you'd meet a Jesus in your town or your synagogue. So it was an incredibly common name, and that's perhaps because not only was it uh, of uh, you know, names that are catchy catch on and, and people tend to run with them, But there were two significant figures in Israel's history who bore the name that is essentially Jesus. They may not come readily to mind because we're so used to the anglicized version of the Greek expression of the Hebrew name. You know, it's a follow a line, follow a line, follow a line. But the the name Jesus is simply the Greek expression of the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua and the two men that were revered in Jewish history that wore their name one was high priest who had served faithfully during the period of, uh, of the post exile and the other was the man who succeeded Moses as the leader of the people and the one who led them into the promised land so it's understandable that that would be a name popular in that day. The more recent one was the man who was born while Israel was in exile and then was one of the high priests who led the restoration of worship when the remnant was allowed to return and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. His name was Joshua, Joshua the high priest, and uh, along with Zechariah uh, and Haggai. He was one of the spiritual leaders for the restoration of the people. We see his story told most vividly in a vision that Zechariah was given. In Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah sees, uh, while he is sleeping, uh, the Lord showing his partner, his, um, his, uh, his friend, Joshua, the high priest, standing as if he was in a courtroom. There in the courtroom is God who is serving as judge, an angel of the Lord who is serving as his advocate, and Satan who is serving as the prosecuting attorney. And the story is a a beautiful, beautiful story of the gospel prior to the the birth of Jesus Christ. Before the, the prosecuting attorney is able to utter a word of accusation God, the judge, tells him to hush up. And says, Is this man not just a stick who has been pulled from the fire? Which is a, a reflection of the eternal state every one of us deserves, because the fire representing the fires of hell. And this man being a stick that has been pulled out. Not that jumped out, but that was pulled out, pulled out by someone who has the authority to do so. And as the story unfolds, There is an accusation that is leveled, at least in the description, because we're told that Joshua, the high priest, who most scholars would say represents the best humanity has to offer. He's a faithful high priest. He's not only one who is close with God, but he is leading other people into God's presence. But he's standing there before God in this courtroom, dressed in filthy rags. Until the angel of the Lord, his advocate, says... Him. And God the Father orders that he be stripped of his rags and dressed in the finest of linens. And it's a picture of the salvation that we have in Christ. It's a reminder that our best efforts, the best that we have to offer, is as filthy rags standing before God in his holiness. And yet by God's grace, Jesus took our filthy rags to himself, and we are told that we are clothed in his righteousness, which radiates, not because of anything we have done, but because of the decree of God, because of his grace, and because of his labor and his efforts. At the end of the scene, you see Joshua the high priest who was unworthy in his own right, standing to be accused because we're all guilty now standing, reflecting the glory of God. It's understandable that the people would have a high appreciation for him. The more familiar Joshua to most who are Bible students is the one who was a successor to Moses. He was born while the people of Israel were still in captivity to the Egyptians. And he was among those who were led out of that captivity when God had raised up a deliverer in the name of Moses, number of years after some time that the people had been not a number of years, but after the people had been delivered, and they were in the wilderness headed to the land that was promised to them. Moses sent out a team of a dozen spies to see where they should go, what, what challenges they would have in the land. And the spies came back and 10 of the spies said, let's not go there. The people there are much stronger than we are. Pretty sure they're not going to be nice to us. We're better off hiding where we are than trying to take them on. Two of the spies, a man named Caleb and a man named Hushia, said, but if God said that this is our land, then let's just go take it. Moses was impressed with their faith and God blessed them because of their faith. And because of that, Moses changed the name of Hoshea to Joshua representing the faith that he had and and that he wanted to declare. Sometime later because the people chose to listen to the majority report and dishonored God, God said that they would all wander in the wilderness until everyone in that generation had died off except for Caleb and Joshua. And because of Moses' own failure, he disqualified himself from being the one to lead the people into the promised land. The job was given to Joshua, formerly known as Oshia, now known as Jehovah Hoshia Joshua. The name Hoshia means salvation. That's glorious enough. But Moses saw in this man faith in God and God was working him wanted his very leadership to be a, a constant reminder that it's God who was at work and his now name now means God saves. Jehovah is salvation. And the people of God and the Jewish people continued to revere him for years to come. And these were two figures and so it would be understandable why people would name their sons after them. But a passage tells us that's not the reason though it would have been reasonable. Joseph Mary named their newborn son Jesus, Greek for Joshua. We're told because he would save their people, these people from their sins. A very specific thing. When we look back at the two Joshua's that are known through Scripture, we see one that symbolizes a, a need of grace and the receiving of grace, but he himself was unable to bestow that grace. And while Joshua, that was the leader, was a tremendous leader who led his people into the promised land, uh, the book of Hebrews suggests to us that there was a lot that is, was still lacking. Because the people, even once they entered into the land, they didn't have peace and rest. They had continual hassles and conflicts. And so, while they had a taste of what was promised, neither of the previous Joshua's were able to accomplish the salvation that God had promised. They were to be foreshadows of the perfect Joshua, the perfect Yeshua, who, again, in Greek would be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins now we need to look at that and move away from the abstract because it's easy to tell the story and repeat the verse over and over again the whole reason for the season is that he would save their his people from their sins but we need to ask this question who are his people well, there was the Jewish people, but we're also told, as we look at the life of Christ, and we see from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, that it wasn't only for the purpose of saving the Jewish people. The Jewish people were the means through whom God would save the nations. And so the people of the people that he had come to save are people, we're told, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people from everywhere on the globe, from every generation, who would believe in God and his provision of salvation in and through this Joshua, this Jesus. And it was those people, the people who would believe that he came to save from their sins. But as we move away from the abstract of looking at this verse, we need to recognize that if we are the people who have believed, and therefore we are the people who have received salvation, then it must be our sins. It's not about their, other people's sins. Jesus has come to save you and me from our sins. And so this is a very, very personal passage, a very, very personal gift that God is giving to us in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. But not only do we need to move from the abstract into the very personal to recognize that it, is, it applies to us, I, I think we need to look at the word saved as well because we use the word salvation so freely that sometimes it loses uh, its power. We lose the perspective of exactly what it means. We recognize that we are saved from sin. But most of us don't look at our sin as something that we need to be saved from. We look at it as something we need to be forgiven of. And while that is true, the fact that his name is Jesus because he will save us from our sins, the word saved is significant here. It tells us what our greatest problem is, whether we're conscious of it or not. It tells us that the problem that we have, the biggest problem that we have in this life, is not the absence of a good role model or a good life coach, but that we are slaves who cannot set ourselves free. We are in need of being saved. We are in need of being rescued. And Jesus will be called, we will carry that, mercury, that name, he will be called Jesus because he will save, he will rescue his people. From their sins. He will rescue us from our sins. I know that's a very familiar story, but I wonder how often we think about it. A number of years ago, I was meeting with a, a young man who um, the couple had asked if I would be willing to uh, perform a, their wedding. They were neighbors of ours. Uh, He and his fiancée had been living together, had a son, but had yet to be married. She was a professing Christian. He wasn't sure exactly what he was. He didn't consider himself a Christian, but said he'd gotten saved once. That That would have been curious to me. For those of you who didn't grow up or live at any point of your adulthood in the South, that's not that uncommon. Uh, in the deep south lots of people are saved even they're, whether they consider themselves a Christian or not or they got saved at some time or another there's some places in the south and this is in northwest Georgia that you've got to get people unsaved before they can actually find salvation and this was one of those cases and so as he was talking I said "Well, what do you, what do you mean you, you've been saved once what do you mean and he told me that his baseball coach when he was in high school the whole baseball team went to church the coach told everybody it would be a good idea to get baptized so he walked the aisle, got baptized, got saved And so I was curious. I said, well, what did you get saved from? And he said, well, that's a good question. I said, I thought so. I mean, if I thought, if I was going to get saved, i kind of want to know what I'm getting saved from. But he's an illustration of many of us because this language is so familiar to us, we don't think through it. It just seems to be part of the religious process. You get baptized, you get saved. You walk an aisle, you get saved. You make a profession of faith, you you get saved. But we don't think anything of it. But the implication of this passage is Jesus has come. He is God's gift to us to save us from our sins. And and so one of the things that we're being saved from is we're being saved from our sins. In other words, there is a a, a danger, an ominous thing about our sins scriptures tell us the wages of sin that the consequence of the reality of our sin is death another consequence we don't think about is that there is our sin puts us as enemies of god and we therefore are being saved from god himself from god's own wrath in this salvation those are pretty serious serious things and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves Because the scripture tells us that we are slaves to sin. It owns us, and it is a nasty master. In fact, our sins are far more sinister than we are inclined to believe. But Jesus was sent to save us from that. unlike the other two Joshua's who were unable to ultimately save, in fact were in need of salvation themselves, this Joshua, Jesus, will save his people. He will do so by fulfilling the purpose for which he was born. He was born to die. He was born to die on the cross. Listen to what Jesus says himself in his, in his, in his, during his ministry. The explanation from his own purpose of being here. John 10. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And as he explains to us in Mark ten forty five, the Son of Man has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the way that Jesus is going to save us, he's going to rescue us, is by dying in our place. That is the very purpose for which he is born. That is his mission. And the mission has been accomplished. Above all, Christmas is really a celebration of the greatest reconnaissance mission ever endeavored. It was not only the most ambitious, but it was the most successful. Because Jesus has come. He has laid his life down only to take it up again for the sole purpose of saving all of his people from all of our sins. And so Juliet asked, what's in a name? There's a lot in this name. As one scholar says, the two names, two Hebrew names by which Jesus is named Jehovah Oshia Joshua they declare to us both his identity and his purpose his identity is he is the savior he is and it's interesting if you look at this passage because it's sort of ambiguous he'll be named Jesus God is giving him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins who is the his is it Jesus who's going to save, or is it God who's going to save? And the answer is yes. And if you need elaboration, I decided we'd only look at the one name, but in the passage there's another name that is given by which he will be known, even though it's not his given name, and that's Emmanuel. He is God who is with us. And so Jesus is God who is in the flesh, who has come, and he will be the one who saves us. That's his identity, as he is God in the flesh, and that's his purpose, is to save us. need to recognize because the message of Christmas is the story of the greatest reconnaissance mission ever endeavored and ever accomplished then the theme of Christmas is freedom because the son of man who was born to set you free he has set you free He has set me free. He has set his people free. Indeed.